in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn with reference to all creation. For by Him were all things created, the things that are in heaven and the things that are upon the earth, the things visible, the things invisible, whether they be thrones, whether dominions, whether principalities, whether powers, all things were created by Him or through Him and unto Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things cohere or stand together. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Now, Paul, you will remember, of course, has been explaining the preeminence of Christ in all things. It began with his preeminence in the redemption of sinners as the mediator who by his bloody death ransomed guilty sinners from God's offended justice, making a satisfaction (laughs) in their behalf, canceling that legal declaration of guilt against them, that they might enter into the presence of God as innocent and righteous and without sin to their account. And then with regard to the old creation, he established that Christ was uh, preeminent as unique, the image of the invisible God. God manifested in his holiness and his righteousness and his love and his grace and his truth and his wisdom and his mercy and his justice. Not an angel not a superman, not a man that achieved deity, but the visible image of the true God. And Christ was preeminent not only as unique from the old creation, but in his relationship with the old creation as the one called the firstborn, which is a title of authority and of privilege, implying that Christ was the head and the Lord. Now why does Christ obtain this title firstborn with reference to all the creation, the same one which the Jews themselves applied to their God. First of all, Christ is the creator of all things. He is the universal creator of every created thing, of matter, of the physical universe, of the spiritual realities, of the souls of men, and especially the heavenly powers whether the thrones of the glorified saints that reign under the rule of God, or that of the angels, the dominions and principalities and powers. Christ is the creator of all of those things, physical and spiritual. And so he's called the firstborn with reference to all creation. Secondly, he did not have to go outside of himself. And he wasn't just an assembler of the parts, like someone who purchases a model at the store and puts it together and gets the finished product. No, it was all in him, created in him. He brought it into being by his own independent power and authority. So he's the firstborn with reference to all the creation. It was thirdly, exclusively his work, in conjunction with, of course, the other members of the Trinity. He created it. It was through him. Fourthly, he was not an inferior agent. He wasn't someone who makes something for someone else to have. It wasn't just like a, you would hire a builder to build a house for you. It wasn't like that at all. He, it was created unto him. It finds its fulfillment and its meaning only in him. It is for his glory, not for any other. There's a passage in Revelation which 
illustrates this very well. Revelation chapter 4. All of the different, uh, the, uh, the four beasts and the 24 elders, the four beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. The four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne there in front of Jesus, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. See, they were unto Him. For thy pleasure they are and were created. And he not only created it, but he maintains it. The whole fabric of reality stands together by Christ, by his power. He's the preserver, the upholder of creation. And finally, he's before all. He pre-exists every created thing since he created every created thing. And so by definition, he's uncreated, meaning that he's eternal, meaning that he's God the eternal Son. And so He's the firstborn with reference to the old creation, the creation of the world, the heavens and the earth. It was the, as one puts it, eternal design of God that the whole old creation should be put in subjection to the Son, and so He is the firstborn. But as we continue in verse 18 of Colossians chapter 1, Paul turns away from the old creation from Genesis 1.1, to the new creation. And what we find is that in the new creation, Christ is equally as preeminent as He was with regard to the old creation. And this will occupy the next several verses. And we'll discover also the relationship between His preeminence in the old creation and His preeminence in the new. And this pretty much continues through verse 20, and then there's an application of it. Uh, that follows from verse 21 to 23. And today we have just one phrase to look at, and that's enough. The first uh, third of verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the head of the body, the church. (coughs) So Paul begins his description of Christ's preeminence with regard to the new creation by revealing Christ's relationship with the central, uh, I hate to use the word institution, but the central reality of the new creation, which is the church. And before we can understand this passage and what it means for Christ to be the head of the body, we have to understand this word. What is this church that, that is being talked about here? Who is it made up of? Who are we describing by this word, church, which is parallel to the body of which Christ is the head. Now the first thing that we have to understand is that our English word, church, is an intentionally neutral translation. This was uh, something that happened at the time of the uh, writing, uh, or excuse me, of the translating of the authorized version Uh, In fact, it was part of the instructions to the translators, as I recall, that they would specifically translate the Greek word by the word church, uh, that which is a Latin word, or from a Latin word, which doesn't have the same connotation as the Greek word, and it was because there was a certain vested interest uh, with regard to the King of England in keeping it a neutral translation. Uh, So it is, uh, we use it very widely, of course, and, uh, but at any rate, it's, it's not a translation as much as it is a substitution. 
for political reasons. The Greek word you will often hear, and so I'm going to tell you what it is a couple of times. It is the word ekklesia, and you'll read that and hear it a lot as you study uh, the doctrine of the church, and uh, uh, you'll run across it often. It's very common, ekklesia. Uh, and its fundamental meaning, and I'll give you an example of this, its fundamental meaning is an assembly or a, a, a congregation. Uh, this is, in fact, the word, in fact, congregation is how Tyndale translated it universally in his uh, translation of the New Testament. And that was one of the uh, reasons that... Uh, the King of England wanted it to be translated as a neutrally church rather than congregation. Uh, Acts 19.32, it's used in its most literal sense. This is when Paul, uh, there's a, a uh, they're in, uh, uh, here at the temple of, uh, in, uh, of Diana in Ephesus, and uh, they started a riot by their uh, preaching, and some of Paul's companions had been... Uh, had been captured and brought into the theater, which was the uh, one of the pla- which was the place in which they held a lot of the uh, large public meetings. Uh, and Paul uh, wanted to go in, probably say something, but uh, they wouldn't let him do it. But it says here, and certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Verse thirty-two. Some therefore cried one thing and some another for the. Ecclesia, the assembly, was confused. And the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Didn't know why they were there. They were just here with this big crowd of people, had been swept into the theater, everybody was shouting one thing, some people shouting another. It was this huge disorderly assembly. See, there are different kinds of assembly, and when the uh, town clerk comes out, he makes it clear that uh, that uh, this was an unlawful assembly, and that if there was any... Uh, if there was any uh, uh, problem, it would be uh, determined in a lawful assembly and not by a riot. And so he dismissed them. So that's the, the most basic fundamental meaning or usage of this word ecclesia, as an assembly of people. And now it's obvious, of course, that in this place, in Colossians, we're not talking about a local congregation. That would be entirely too narrow of a meaning. But we are talking about a whole group of people, some whole group. And I believe that we are talking about the whole company of the redeemed, viewed collectively as a multitude. Uh, we must understand this. We are not talking about the whole company of professing Christians that are alive on the earth. Uh, we are not talking about believers and their children. We are talking uh, about the whole company of the redeemed, if you will, of the elect. It's vital that we get that point. I think Ephesians 5 uh, several passages, Ephesians 5 in particular, will help us to understand this, verses 23 through 30. This is a parallel passage, we'll be referring to it several times. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. 
For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This is an important parallel passage, and it is a, a clincher, really, in determining uh, how we are to understand this word as it is used in Colossians 1, verse 18, and in similar passages. Simply put, it says that Christ loved the church. Did Christ love the whole number of people who have ever professed his name upon the earth? I think not. Uh, did Christ love everyone in the parish? Or did he love the whole company of the redeemed? Did Christ give himself for the whole company of professors that have lived upon the earth, or all in the parish, or every believer and all of their children? Or did he give himself for the whole company of the redeemed? Who does he sanctify and cleanse? Who will he be presenting to himself without spot or wrinkle? You see, we're not talking about a, a mixed number of some believers and some unbelievers, however you want to define it or create it. We're obviously talking about the elect of God. Those are the ones whom Christ loved and gave himself for and sanctifies and cleanses and presents to himself glorified and nourishes and cherishes. The, the ones who he predestinates and calls and justifies. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22 through 25. I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 22 through 25. But you are come unto Mount Zion the real Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. You see, that's the elect, the one whose names are written in the book of life. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, however me, we, we may think that, or want to argue about, uh, the usage of this word elsewhere in Scripture, and I think there are, this is not the only meaning of the word, that would be rather ridiculous. Uh, have we want to debate about the, what is, uh, who should be considered a member of the visible church or the subjects of baptism? There can be no question about the identity of this ecclesia here in Colossians 1.18 and in, and in similar passages uh, that are parallel with this one. This is the blood-bought inheritance of Jesus Christ. The redeemed considered together as an entire number and multitude. That great congregation of every tongue and tribe and nation, more numerous than any man can number, than the very grains of sand in the sea that will one day assemble together in that heavenly Jerusalem to worship the glorified Christ. And if any man can explain Ephesians 5 in a different way, I would challenge him to do so. Uh, I think it is uh, impossible. Now this company of all of the redeemed, this, this uh, assembly of the elect, is considered in Scripture under a number of images. Sometimes the church of Jesus Christ is considered as a great house in which Christ is the ruling son. Sometimes it is considered as a bride for which Christ is coming as the husband. And then in the, in the day of his return, there'll be the great wedding feast. Here and elsewhere, it is considered as a body of which Christ is the head. Now, we must consider this idea of the whole company of the redeemed as a body. Why are they called 
a body. What does it mean for them to be a body? Now, this body also is a spiritual entity. It is the same as the ecclesia of Christ uh, that is being talked about in this place, the whole company of the redeemed. That's the nature of, of the grammatical relationship here. And he is the head of the body that is the church. The body and the church are the same thing. Now, who is this, this, uh, this body? Well, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, because as I said, we're going to see that it's identical with our definition for ecclesia. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, it is made up of those who are partakers of God's promise in Christ by the gospel, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. You see, it's those who are partakers of the promised in Christ by the gospel, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. No difference. But it's the partakers. It is those who, by one spirit, are baptized into one body, who drink into one spirit. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember we were reading that? As the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Who is this body of Christ? Verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles or bond or free, and have been all been made to drink into one Spirit. It's the partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ, those who've been baptized by the Holy Spirit of God, and who drink into one Spirit. It's the redeemed, you see. It's the elect. These terms are applicable only to those whom God saves. This is really a very simple doctrine, but people put all kinds of spins on it in the heat of polemic, and so that's why I'm kind of camping on it. Now, the doctrine of the church as a body has several purposes in the New Testament. It is sometimes used in order to explain the salvation of all kinds of men without distinction, to stress the universal nature of the gospel. Those two passages we just looked at, Ephesians 3, 6, uh, that the Gentiles partakers of the promise uh, of Christ by the gospel, and 1 Corinthians 12, 13, one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, we all drink of one spirit, whether we're Jews or Gentiles or bonds or free, stresses that universal nature of the gospel and that unionizing of all men without distinction in, in Christ. It is also sometimes used, and perhaps this is its main use, in fact, to show the necessity of unity in local congregations, of mutual Christian service in humility, with a recognition of the necessity of every believer's gifts and service to the strength and health of the body of Christ. That entire chapter that we read in, in 1 Corinthians 12, particularly verses 12 through 27, is precisely for this point. It's to show that if they're all one body... Then and, they, and, and, and a body has lots of different members. There are hands and feet and eyes and nose. And, and it all has to be together. It can't go off independently and say, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with the... the, the, the I don't need the nose, says the eye. It can't work that way. That's, uh, or Romans uh, also, similar passage, uh, chapter 12. Again, lots of chapter 12s today. Verses 3 through 8. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you... Not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think soberly, 
according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, ministry, exhortation, and so forth, he says, shall exercise their gifts. But, but they, they're not supposed to think more highly of themselves than they ought and despise other people in the church because they're all one body. Again, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this time, verses 16 and 17, he says, uh, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we all are partakers of that one bread. <clears throat> so therefore, uh, you, shouldn't, you should not go to idol temples, or partake of the table of devils, or cause brethren to stumble by seeking your own wealth uh, rather than another man's profit. So you've got to take into account one another. And then in a, in a sort of a way, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, same type of thing. Uh, there's one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? Till we all it's, it's for, for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. Till the body grows up to maturity. So, all of these different gifts are necessary. That's the, probably the principal purpose of this illustration in the scriptures. The emphasis is on, on the body, how the members of the body should relate to one another, how they need to recognize the necessity of all the gifts cooperating together in, 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 a, in a local assembly so that, that, so that the, so the body of Christ in its totality will be built up to be strong. You see, the body is... Uh, the body is... <laughs> It's not like a club. It's an organism. So, because people think people think that the, the Church of Jesus Christ is like a club that you join. You go just like you say. Oh, I think I'll become a Freemason. This fellow goes down into the Freemasons and he passes through the uh, admittance rituals and then he's a Freemason. Or somebody says, oh, I think I'll become a member of the Lions or of the Boy Scouts or of the the the, the, the Greek Club. So you go down, you pay your membership dues, you show up at the meetings, you participate, you're, you're, part of the, you're part of the club. Church isn't a club. Church of Jesus Christ is an organism. There's a, uh, uh, a union in the Church of Jesus Christ, a spiritual union, an organic union, the partaking of the promises of God, the baptizing by one spirit, the drinking in one spirit which is then represented as they come together corporately to partake of the one loaf and, 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 and so because they are the one body. It's a living organism of which each believer is a part, just like a physical body, united together with other believers in the same way. So just like the hand and the foot are united in a physical body. So each... Each, each uh, redeemed of God is united together in this spiritual body. It's not a club. It's an organism. But now in the text before us, the emphasis is on what? 
It is not on the body itself. It's on the fact that this body has a head. Now, this truth of the body as a spiritual organism, uh, the whole company of the redeemed in union, is fundamental and implied. So as we consider the head, we shouldn't forget about what we were talking about, the body, who the body is, and how and why the members of the body are united together. But this is about the head of the body. See, every living body has a head, doesn't it? Do you, do you know anybody that doesn't have a head? That'd be gross, wouldn't it? I mean, that's a horrible thing. That's grotesque. What's a headless body? A headless body is a dead body. But this is a living body. And so it has to have a head, too. And that head is the emphasis of our text. So remember that this entire section is about Christ and his preeminence. Now, so far we've identified this central element in the new creation, this assembly of the redeemed, this company of the elect, this spiritually unionized body. But what we're really after is what is Christ's relationship to this organism, this spiritual multitude, and how does it reflect his preeminence? And it's just like this. Christ is the head of the body. Colossians 1.18, a similar uh, text, Ephesians 1.22, gave him to be the head over all things to the church. The Ecclesia, Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the Ecclesia, the Savior of the body. Now what does it mean for Christ to be the head of the body? What sort of relationship is this? The answer is twofold. It's two things. It, it, it implies sustenance of life and authority of rule. See, first of all, Christ is what, what the theologians like to call the organic head of the church. What I mean by this is that Christ gives and sustains the life of this body. It's just as a human body, apart from its head, would be dead and lifeless and putrefy and rot, so this spiritual body without Christ would be dead also. At Colossians 2.19, not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. Also, uh, you can look at Ephesians 4, 15, 16. I'm not going to read that right now, but that's a parallel passage. It's just a little more complicated to understand, but it says the same thing. It is by Christ the head that the body is knit together, brought into union, upheld, if you will. It coheres. It is by Christ the head that the body is nourished so that it increases. So just like a human body, it's, you feed it and it grows. Uh, Christ nourishes his body so that it increases. It's sustained by grace and communication of spiritual blessing and strength. It's Ephesians 5, 28, 30. So men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord the church, for we're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. He, he nourishes it and cherishes it. And why? Why does he nourish and cherish it? What's the result of his nourishing and cherishing the body? Well, that's, that's Ephesians 5, 21 through 24. Oh, no, I'm sorry, uh, 25 through 27. That he might sanctify and cleanse it that he might present it to himself glorious, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. He's, 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 he's sanctifying it with this nourishing, and he's going to perfect it and glorify it one day. Is there any life in the body of Christ? If there is, it is only on account of Christ's life-giving headship. 
He's the organic head. He sustains it. He nourishes it. He cherishes it. He gives life to the body. But he's also the ruling head. He has the authority of rule. Headship is all one with authority and power. Same passage, Ephesians 5, a little bit earlier, 21 through 24. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The body of Christ is subject to Christ, not merely in some things, but in everything. As the ruling head of the church, Christ is the lawgiver. He establishes the standard in the law by which the body will be governed. As the ruling head of the church, Christ is the judge of the body. Judgment begins at the house of God. All within it are answerable to Him for how they receive and obey His laws, how they build upon the foundation. Some with wood, hay, and stubble will be saved, yet as by fire, but others who build with gold and silver, uh, they receive a reward. As ruling head of the church, Christ is the defender of the body. Against his church, the gates of hell will not prevail. Uh, prevail. He rules it, he directs it, he guides it, he defends it, he judges it. That's how he's the ruling head. So he sustains it, gives it life as the organic head, and then he rules over it and defends it and judges it as the authoritative head. Now, how is Christ preeminent in these things? Remember that, that Paul, in his detailed and careful explanation here, makes sure that these Colossians... Uh, know that Christ is preeminent in the the new creation as well as the old. What about this thing called the church, this assembly of Christ? Now this was a doctrine, you see, that in earlier times was shrouded in darkness. It wasn't that it didn't exist. It was shrouded in darkness. So that many aspects of this doctrine of Christ's ecclesia are called a mystery. There's two or three of them that are called a mystery. A mystery is not something you can't understand. It means something that was before hidden. And now it's revealed. It was a mystery to people before. They couldn't figure it out. Didn't even know about it. So that means uh, that the very newness of this doctrine probably gave a foothold to every heretic to propound all kinds of errors about it. You see, because it wasn't something people had heard over and over and over for a thousand years, right? A new thing. It was a mystery. It was unfolding. In fact, this this mention here of the head, you don't even hear about Christ being the head until you get to Ephesians and Colossians. You hear about the body and the and the and how the fu- body functions together, but the doctrine of Christ's headship is a, is a late doctrine, scripturally speaking. So, so they could come up with any kind, all kinds of things about this doctrine of the church. Make up any weird doctrine they wanted to, and nobody would really know uh, offhand whether it was right or wrong. Paul cuts right to the heart of the matter, and he says, I've taught you about this assembly, this body, this union of the redeemed and the Holy Spirit, independent of racial stock or social class, this unionization of all of the redeemed of God in the body of Christ. But let me tell you something else. This body has a head, and this head is Jesus Christ. You see, these errorists had, had, had dethroned Christ everywhere. But Paul reminds them that apart from him, they have no being as a redeemed community. These errorists had struck at Christ's headship in both aspects. We'll see this as we continue in the, uh, Colossians chapter 2. is almost all about this. Against his ruling headship, they had propounded a whole host of religious ordinances, introduced new manners of worship, and restored the Jewish ordinances as if Christ had not come and fulfilled them, preferring shadow to reality. You see that in uh, chapter 2, 16 through uh, 23. As far as his organic 
headship. They had denied that also, and they had substituted a whole host of mediators and sources of spiritual life. Uh, Verses 6 through 15 are largely about that, of chapter 2. Well, they, they... They'd attacked it at every angle they could to get rid of Jesus Christ. But once again, Paul cuts right to the heart of the manor and just five words. The head of the body. The head of the body. Christ revealed as preeminent in in the central reality of the new creation. The redemption of sinners. the, The forming of the body of Christ. This whole company of the redeemed called the Church of Jesus Christ, the Ecclesia, the Assembly of Jesus Christ. He's the head of it. Now there are are many challenges today to Christ's headship. Of course, chief among these, and historically chief, is the Church of Rome. Well, excuse me, using that term in, in the way we use it. Rome. Which dethrones Christ at every turn. The entire corrupt system is an assault on Jesus Christ. What is ruling headship? Well, instead we have the Pope, who's the vicar of Christ on earth. We have a hundred new offices, archbishops and archdeacons and archwhatevers, archheretics, and nuns and monks and priests. We have a hundred new kinds of worship and endless religious laws propounded by the one who blasphemously calls himself His Holiness. Direct assault on the ruling headship of Jesus Christ. They assault His organic headship. Many mediators, Rome tells you. Not just... In fact, Christ, stay away from Him. He's angry. Get Mary instead. She's nice. Our our, uh, contemporary Pope is a great leader in this. Oh, and the priest. Go to the priest. Have confession. He'll mediate. Pray to the angels. Pray to all the saints. Ten for every day. Drop a little money in the box while you're there, too. See, a more perfect opposition can't be imagined. But I am afraid that the contemporary evangelical church is little better. What about Christ's ruling headship? Well, his worship is altered to fit human whim. Or to attract the world. That's a, that's a popular one today. The whole church growth movement. You go out take a survey. Find out what all the uh, lost people in your neighborhood think the church ought to be like. That's an authoritative source. Then you do it. And guess what? They come. How about that? Novel thing, isn't it? Direct attack on Christ's ruling headship. His law is either denied altogether. Or it's altered to fit whatever... Uh, whim of society happens to be prevalent in a given congregation, or it's replaced by some mini-popedom. The authority of Christ's word is set aside and replaced by the authority of feelings and impressions. That's the Holy Spirit, we're told, the leading of the Holy Spirit, which, of course, is to pit God against himself, as if the Holy Spirit of God would lead contrary to the word of God or independent of it. So we have the authority of feelings and impressions. So the Holy Spirit fights against Jesus. How about his organic headship? Well, the sustenance is instead found in modern psychology. Have a problem? Go to the shrink. In pleasure and in entertainment, the church is held in union by its common addiction to worldliness and foolishness. The headship of Christ denied at every turn. But remember, each one of these things has its root in the human heart. We are not immune to these sins or guiltless of them. Every act of self-will is an act against Christ's ruling headship of the body. Every time 
you seek sustenance or consolation outside of Christ, it strikes at his organic headship. The despising of the brethren, the esteeming of oneself is better than the brethren. Failing to receive them as one's own blood, as the children of God. These things are all sins against Christ's headship. See, we don't, we don't have to leave the room to find plenty of sins against Christ's headship, do we? We need to seek Him as head in all things. We need to find sustenance in Him, leading to mutual love and service, and acceptance of the brethren, humble exercise of mutual gifts to the upbuilding of the fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ. We need to find authority in Him, receiving His commands and laws in worship and doctrine and life, crucifying our own wills, taking up our cross daily and following Him, that in all things He might have the preeminence. We need to be careful, lest in railing against the failings of the apostasies of Rome or the failings of contemporary evangelicalism, uh, we forget uh, that the Word of God applies first of all to us. And we need to start there, or we are no better than a Pharisee and a hypocrite who would stand and consider himself greater than others. Mm -hmm.